episode 331 of the Cyber Law Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Thank you for joining us. We're lawyers talking about technology, security, privacy, and government. And the views we're about to express are disclaimed by our firms, our families, our institutions, our pets, uh, and pretty much anybody who knows us. Uh, uh, but uh, we've got a great uh, lineup today for the news, which is what we'll be doing today. Uh, Jamil Jaffer, the founder of the National Security Institute and adjunct professor at George Mason University. Uh, Nate Jones, co-founder of Culper Partners, formerly with the Justice Department and the National Security Council. If we're lucky, Bruce Schneier is going to join us. He's an internationally known technologist, privacy and security guru. Uh, and uh, as we were getting ready to record this, he started having internet problems. So we don't know whether he'll be able to get on. Uh, and uh, Charles Heliput, uh, who's a uh, partner at Steptoe & Johnson uh, in our Brussels and London offices, uh, he heads the Cy Cybersecurity Data and Privacy Practice for the European Union. And I'm Stuart Baker, formerly with NSA and DHS, and the host of today's program, and of course, Chief Provocateur. So we've got a bunch of um, middle sized stories, and uh, uh, the biggest of the middle sized story, uh, to my mind, uh, is the indication by the Treasury that um, there are significant consequences under U.S. law uh, if you pay certain ransomware gangs. These are gangs who have been sanctioned for their uh, hacking activities. Jamil, what did Treasury say? Well, so what's really interesting about this uh, new notification that came out on October 1st is that Treasury is essentially saying that if you help facilitate uh, uh, transactions, even ransomware payment, including ransomware payments, uh, to sanctioned individuals, uh, you could be potentially prosecuted or pursued by Treasury uh, for a sanctions violation. Now, this is important uh, because a number of recent OFAC designations, that is the Office of Foreign Assets Control at the Treasury Department, have designated uh, entities involved with ransomware. So if you take a look at uh, for example, the, the developer of CryptoLocker, right, uh, Evgeny uh, Bogoshev, he was designated in 2016. Um, the uh, the individuals, the Iranians involved with the SamSam ransomware, that's the ransomware that affected the city of Atlanta, they were designated in 2018. Uh, WannaCry was developed by the North Koreans. It was linked to the Lazarus Group, right, a, similar, a cr cyber criminalization associated with North Korea. They were designated in September 2019. And Evil Corp, right, uh, the Russian-based cyber criminalization, which used the Drydex malware, uh, was designated along with its leader uh, back in December 2019 also. So now all these entities that are involved in some of the biggest ransomware campaigns have now been designated. That means that if you pay ransomware to them or if you're a financial institution that facilitates a ransom, you could be subject to potential uh, pursuit by Treasury uh, for violation of, of those sanctions. Yeah, I, what I thought was interesting, I mean, that's always been theoretically an issue. Uh, as soon as they started designating these ransomware guys, uh, uh, you thought, ooh, uh, am I potentially in violation of OFAC, uh, uh, OFAC's designation? Um, but there was always a certain amount of uncertainty about who it was that was asking for the ransom um, but uh, and whether you were going to 
end up caught, what you're, uh, uh, you had to worry about, whether you could perhaps get a license, because after all, paying the ransom might turn out to be the best possible deal. Uh, but if I'm reading this OFAC uh, announcement, they said two really important and uh, fraught things for people who are uh, facing ransomware payments. One, they said, um, if you expect us to treat you well when it comes time to punish you, you better have contacted law enforcement, by which we mostly mean us, uh, before you make a payment. And two, um, if you ask us for a license, there's a presumption of denial, which means we're not going to give licenses to make these payments. Uh, that really puts people in a bad spot. They have to call if they want to... Uh, uh, keep uh, their uh, uh, compliance program benefits for sentencing and uh, the like. Uh, uh, and when they call, they're going to be told to ask for a license. And when they ask for a license, they're going to be told no. And then they can't pay unless they really want to um, uh, uh, be punished badly. Right. No, that's exactly right. You know, uh, Stuart, one of the interesting things is, um, as you say, uh, they said, look, you if you have self-initiated and timely and completely reported a ransomware attack, right, we'll consider that as a mitigation. And second, if you are fully and timely cooperating with law enforcement during and after ransomware attacks, we'll consider that a significant mitigating factor. So the way to avoid sanctions of when when you're paying a ran, paying ransomware uh, fees uh, is to is to get ahead of it, talk to uh, the FBI presumably or law enforcement general, but really as you say, the FBI ahead of time uh, as it's happening, you know, do it yourself um, and then cooperate with them. Well. I mean, not all companies are going to be fully comfortable doing that, and not all financial institutions are going to be comfortable doing that, and that's a real challenge. And then your point on licenses is exactly right. Um, you know, this presumption of denial. The problem, of course, is that the FBI's advice to a lot of victims of ransomware attacks has recent in recent memory been just pay the ransom. So now you have a tension right between the advice they're getting from the bureau on one hand, and what's what Treasury is saying with respect to at least some of the bigger sanctions, the b bigger ransomware actors who've been sanctioned already. Hey, look, that's all. It's nice that the fans give you that advice. It's nice you need your data. But, you know, if you if you really want to be looked upon favorably, and by the way, it says you'll be looked upon favorably. It doesn't mean you will get away with it or that you'll be able to be held completely scot-free. This is a real problem. And it really puts financial institutions and people who are victims of ransomware attack in a very tough position. Yeah, I I agree with you on that. And it's, it's actually awkward for the FBI. The FBI has spent the last couple of years trying to dig out from under the reputation that if you call the FBI to tell them that you're a victim, that they might investigate you. And they've, they've been working very hard to say, look, we're not your regulator. We are the bureau. We're looking, we think you're a victim and we're looking for the criminals who victimized you. Now it's going to get tougher. Uh, I didn't realize they were actually telling people to pay. I know they were, they, they've been telling, at least my clients have been uh, told, we can't tell you not uh, to, to pay. It is a violation of law. We can't tell you uh, uh, whether you should pay, but uh, lots of people have. And the message is, yeah, you should pay because what else are you going to do? Um, uh, but uh, uh, now it becomes much more awkward for them to say anything like that. They have to say, well, it's a violation of federal law to pay. 
Bruce Schneier has joined us. Uh, uh, Bruce, uh, uh, that's record time for clearing up an internet problem. Uh, I, the uh, uh, the OFAC ruling on cyber ransom. I, 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 what do you think is going to be the final upshot of all this? Well, first, they didn't clear up the Internet's problems. They just cleared up my Internet's problems. So it was a little easier. Uh, <laughs> but, but here, I, I think you're right that this is a hard situation. We as society want no one to pay ransom. So this is not a viable criminal business model. But when we are the victim, we want to pay ransom. This is true for kidnapping and it's true for uh, ransomware. And there's no really well, especially good now solution. that people are actually dying, right? We've got we've had several deaths now as a result of ransomware attacks on uh, uh, both European and American health service providers. So the idea that the, the the government is going to say no, you still can't pay, that's pretty tough. It's pretty tough, but it, it, it is the right societal answer. So how do we get there? Because we're going to see ransomware against appliances, against thermostats, against your car. So you're right. This is going to become no longer a matter of data. It's going to become a matter of public safety. I think the other thing, interesting thing that, that Bruce raises is, you know, as people start making these payments, right, if financial institutions can't uh, effectuate these payments, right, you, you start creating uh, a desire by people who do want to pay ransoms to use alternative mechanisms. So it wouldn't be surprising if you see uh, people who are paying ransoms to turn increasingly uh, to Bitcoin and alternative methods and alternative financing institutions outside the normal banking system that complies with sanctions laws. And that's also probably not the right approach uh, the Treasury wants uh, folks to take. So I think, you know, pushing this stuff outside the normal system may cause even more problems also. So if, you, if, you, if you're looking for a business and you're uh, in the increasingly uh, crowded uh, cybersecurity field, here's a business model. You will be the person who is most skeptical about the attribution of the ransomware attack. You'll say, I don't know that that's really Evil Corp. Uh, I still see some problems there. So you can go ahead and pay because you're not paying Evil Corp. Uh, that's my prediction about uh, where this goes. All right. Well, so interestingly, the very same mechanism that has been used against uh, uh, these cyber uh, uh, hackers uh, uh, is the mechanism that has been proposed to um, a deal with WeChat and TikTok, which is why it's such an enormous weapon in the hands of the United States. You can just cut them off from all financial transactions if you choose to. Um, uh, this has not been a big week for TikTok, surprisingly, uh, uh, but uh, there are a couple of new developments uh, uh, in the TikTok story. Jamil, why don't you tell us what's happened? Well, so as you know, uh, the entire uh, situation with TikTok turns on uh, this uh, potential deal with Oracle uh, and the question whether uh, Oracle and Walmart will have the right kind of deal that will address the national security concerns. The president initially said he thought it was going to be good to go. This has now led to some uh, concerns because the Oracle deals with just with TikTok USA. It's not with TikTok Global, et cetera, et cetera. And so um, in the meantime, uh, we've also had uh, some judges get involved, um, and we've seen uh, uh, a, 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 a halt uh, to the TikTok order, which would have gone into effect uh, last Sunday because there was not an approved deal in place. Uh, that deal has not gone into effect. That, that order has not gone into effect. And like with WeChat uh, the week before, um, so there's a stay now in place. And so we'll see how this all plays out. Uh, but it is certainly a challenge. Yeah. And I think what's, what's interesting, two things that are interesting for TikTok is – that TikTok um, 
has two deadlines, uh, and the second deadline is not this newfangled, we will use IEPA, OFAC sanctions against you. It is a more traditional CFIUS, we will uh, uh, close down your deal with Musical.ly, um, a, that... Uh, uh, the government has begun an investigation of TikTok and is negotiating under CFIUS authorities to try to produce the same result that was being proposed for the uh, IEPA-OFAC uh, uh, approach. Uh, and two interesting things have happened there. Uh, uh, first, TikTok, Mnuchin, Secretary Mnuchin said, look, here's going to be the deal. Uh, 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 the entire company transfers all the code. Oracle's going to do the code over again. If we don't get what we want, then TikTok is out of the U.S. market. Uh, that was a pretty aggressive thing to say from the man who's probably the most um, dovish of the CFIUS organizers uh, or uh, responsible agencies. Uh, um, and then just to make sure that everybody got the message that Cepheus had been reborn, uh, the Trump, there's a story uh, in the Wall Street, in the uh, Washington Post saying uh, quite accurately that the um, Treasury has begun calling dozens of companies who did deals years ago and didn't take them to Cepheus to say, uh, yo, uh, you got a CFIUS filing you got to make. Uh, and uh, there's a great fear that many of those are Chinese tech investments that are going to get um, uh, vetoed by CFIUS. Nate, did you follow any of this? Yeah, I did, Stuart. And, you know, I think it's probably better to to view this as, as slightly separate from the enforcement actions against TikTok and WeChat, you know, especially where companies haven't made filings like this, there, there can be a lag time um, between Treasury, you know, turning their sights on these companies. And so, you know, I think, I think this is probably best viewed as a little bit more of a continuation of a trend that's been underway for a long time of, of um, applying more scrutiny to Chinese investments. Um, there's been an increase in, in investments from China over the last decade or so. That has gone up and down year by year a bit, but overall, I think um, there have been greater investments in the tech industry here by China. There's a better appreciation by the government of of where they're investing and and what their goals are and and how those investments potentially impact U.S. national security. And then, of course, there was the CFIUS reform that was passed in 2018, the Foreign Investment Risk Review Modernization Act that is probably playing a bit of a role in this. Um, that bill expanded the scope of covered transactions and the factors you can look at. Um, and also last year, um, the Treasury Department got 20 million extra dollars to to look at, um, you know, we assume mostly Chinese uh, investments in the US. So, um, you know, I think these are things that are driving some of this scrutiny a little bit more. Um, you, were, you look like you were gonna say something uh, on top of that, uh, they are now collecting very large uh, filing fees. Uh, uh, I recently wrote them a check for $300,000 yeah. uh, uh, just to file one case. Uh, and uh, um, that 
that money, I think, is earmarked for uh, the uh, uh, expansion of this kind of effort. So, yeah, we're going to see exactly. a lot of this. Uh, uh, and a lot of people are going to be, well, it'll be good for the CFIUS practice, that's for sure. Uh, and I think uh, um, we'll get a lot more scrutiny of deals that probably should have been scrutinized and just couldn't because there was such a flood of them. Yeah, you know the one funny thing in the story is they they may have to change their their approach to approaching these companies because it sounds like a lot of the emails are are getting as ignored as uh, potential spam or something. They they seem to, to be a little bit cryptic and they're going to have to do a better job if they want uh, these companies to take them up on their offer to provide more information on what's going on. Don't say that. People will start sending out CFIUS emails saying, you've been chosen for a CFIUS review based on your most recent transaction. Just click here. <laughs> Congratulations. So, Stuart, you know, I do think I do think uh, Nate raises a good point, which is, you know, these are this is a significant issue for American companies that have taken investments for a long time. Uh, there used to be sort of a thought that um, depending on how large the investment was and depending on what it looked like, you didn't need to uh, undergo a CFIUS review. And with the administration's strong approach to China, I think, has made clear that it's not just uh, tr full on transactions, it's investments, it's also uh, potentially, you know, organic apps, as we saw in the case of WeChat and TikTok. So I think the, the, the administration's much more aggressive posture um, is 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 part of what's going on here. I don't think people should expect that, that significant change from even a, a Joe Biden administration if it were to come to pass, uh, because uh, uh, Vice President Biden has been very clear about his views on China um, and his concerns about the U.S. labor market and his desire to onshore investment. And so um, I think there's a lot to a lot to be said here for companies that have that have had transactions like this in the past or considering transactions in the future, um, whether it's an investment or otherwise, uh, that the U.S. government is getting more aggressive here and will likely stay more aggressive regardless of what happens in the presidential election. The last thing I'd say about Oracle uh, to come back to that issue is, look, you know, it's what Mnuchin, I think, is saying here. And again, you're right to say he's the most dovish. And so I'm not sure this deal doesn't go through um, if the president and Mnuchin decided it ought to. Uh, but what they're really trying to do is revive what used to be the Microsoft deal, was on, which was on offer, which was this idea that the code would be here, they'd rewrite it. Uh, the Chinese government, of course, has gotten wise to that and has now put in place regulations to prevent the transfer of some of that AI, uh, those AI algorithms to the U.S. Without that coming here, it's very hard to imagine how U.S. user data stays in the United States. And so I think that is really the, 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 the key issue here. I don't see how an Oracle transaction gets approved unless... Uh, the administration decides to look past the national security issues and move down the road. I I think that they both they, they both the uh, U.S. and the Chinese government are more than willing to sacrifice bite dance to show you know that they've they, they've got the biggest uh, uh, organ on the planet. Uh, and, <laughs> and, uh, that's that. I still think that's the most likely outcome. Although there's an awful lot of money that will be disappointed if that happens, Nate. Yeah, I was just going to say, I think what's going on here is a bit of a game of chicken between um, the U.S. government and Oracle on the one hand and and um, TikTok and China on the other. And, you know, China and, and TikTok clearly don't want to agree to this kind of deal that Mnuchin has laid out. Um, and they think that Trump will blink. They think that the, the political calculus here at the end of the day um, will cause him to to accept this deal and try to claim victory, even if it's a hollow victory. Um, I'm not sure he's going to do that. He may see more advantage in continuing to poke the China bear, so to speak. So, um, I, you know, it's going to come down to who blinks first. 
I don't know who's going to urge him to do that other than Larry Ellison. If Mnuchin is talking as tough as he is, uh, there's not a lot of people left inside the government to say, hey, boss, maybe we ought to think this this through a little more. Um, And at the end of the day, he does listen to his people, sort of. Um, uh, so my guess is uh, um, uh, they just uh, they just let bite dance go, and everybody says, "Well, that shows how tough we are." Uh, don't screw with yeah. us. Uh, all right. Uh, so um, somebody's been screwing with t- uh, with Trickbot, uh, uh, Bruce. This is, was kind of an interesting, not exactly unprecedented, but I thought it was interesting considering how. Big trick bot is it's a an enormous DDoS uh, bot army, uh, uh, and somebody is trying to suborn it. And not the first time it's happened. We've had you know government slash Microsoft takedowns of uh, different bots and uh, different malware networks. It's it's kind of weird. We don't know who's behind this, but it's sort of neat to watch this this attack and counterattack. Yeah, uh, it, 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 they went in and basically said to all of the bots, from now on, you get your orders from this new uh, uh, site. And it was a site that actually is more likely to be on somebody's internal network than on the, uh, um, uh, uh, on the internet, uh, which made me wonder whether this was really designed to help network administrators because if you could stand this up inside your network then you can start giving you can first find out which of your machines is infected and then start giving them uh uh, uh, uh instructions that are not going to hurt your uh, your company but you'll need an app to do that the fact that we don't know what's going on here makes this weird but certainly attacking the command and control servers is a common way to take down botnets and botnets are, are, you know, different levels of good or bad at being resistant to that. So, so an interesting arms race. I just don't know enough right now about this story to know what's going on. It is still developing sort of as we speak. Okay. All right. Um, and I, I, this is this is this is one I'm very fond of. Uh, I, and uh, Charles, I'm going to ask you to help me uh, walk through it. Uh, the U.S. government, of course, was put in a really bad spot by the Schrems II decision. We've talked about it in the past, uh, where basically the uh, the Court of Justice of the European Union uh, set very high standards standards that I would point out no European government has ever met for its intelligence programs uh, and said, unless the, um, uh, those standards are met, you can't find the United States to be adequate. And they struck down the uh, uh, privacy shield. Everyone is now rushing to do the standard corporate clauses, which is an alternative mechanism for uh, sending data uh, outside of Europe. Um, but the court set a standard for that, saying everybody who uses that has to make sure that they can meet European standards, which include all these slightly wacky uh, uh, requirements from the uh, Court of Justice. Um, And what the U.S. uh, has done, I think it's DOJ and uh, DHS and uh, um, uh, the Commerce Department, DNI rather than DHS and the Commerce Department, they said, okay, if you're doing that analysis, here's the uh, the blueprint for saying that notwithstanding the fact that our the U.S. law hasn't changed a well hasn't changed much, um, a, the analysis is different, 
and it's okay. You can continue to use the standard corporate clauses until the, the, the Court of Justice of the European Union comes back and says it again, that they, they, they want a standard for the United States that no one else in the world is meeting. Um, and Charles, I, I, that's a US-centric view. Uh, give us uh, uh, the view from Brussels. Yeah, thanks, Stuart. And um, yeah, probably no surprise, but I know we all know that the shield is down. Um, that's for sure. Uh, whether that was completely a surprise, uh, probably not. Um, what we also know is that most um, data protection authorities uh, across Europe don't really know what to do with the um, uh, court case of the um, Court of Justice. And really, that white paper is... Uh, the guy of the U.S. saying, you know what, we um, we made all of that trouble, so we're going to help you and trying to sort that out. Um, I, I think the white paper is basically doing three things, or at least trying to do three things. So first, they'll say, yeah, there are a number of companies to um, today that use data, and those data have zero interest for U.S. surveillance. So keep going, transferring HR data to your HQ uh, in the U.S. because, frankly, we will never tap into those type of data because they are of no interest to us. That, that's kind of first things they try to do. That strikes me as, strikes me as a, a pretty solid response. If somebody, say, somebody says, well, what about 702 and 12333? You just say, no. as far as I know, no one has ever asked for any of the data that I'm sending to the United States under any of those clauses. And therefore, if there's something wrong with those clauses, you know, tant pis. Yeah, exactly. And and frankly, I think on that front, that is probably right and relatively clever from the um, from the white paper. And if then you just come down to putting into some of the agreement uh, extra clauses saying, if ever you receive a visa request, just tell us because then we'll need to reassess what we're going to do. That's fine. Um, but that is only one of the things that the paper is trying to do. Um, a second thing the U.S. is also trying to do, so it says, uh, you know what, U.S. is indeed maybe collecting a lot of those data, but we do that for our benefit, but not only. We also do that for the wider good, and we have um, a number of cases where we have transferred those very useful data back to some of our uh, EU counterparts. So all of the efforts we do in tapping into EU individuals, it's something we do for the uh, common good. Um, frankly, uh, it's also probably fair from the U.S. doing that. I, I think it's much more kind of self-prophecy, So, because, of course, no one will be uh, able to really see the, um, the track of all of those cases where they have been so helpful. Yes, but, but I, I, it is. It would be ballsy for a company like Facebook or Google to say, "Yes, we transfer the the, the data to the United States. The U.S. Uh, serves us with 702 orders to get the content, uh, and we think the transfer is serving the public interest because the U.S. is so good at extracting intelligence from uh, uh, from Gmail. Um, it, it, it's ballsy, uh, and if your back is to the wall, uh, maybe you'd make that argument. But I thought that was that was pushing it. I thought they had some better arguments in saying, we think that there's a whole bunch of uh, subtle aspects or new aspects to U.S. law that um, the court did not consider. And therefore, you can say, yeah, nothing has nothing much has changed, 
but I'm looking, I, I know more than the court did. The court had a record in front of it. It didn't have all of this stuff in front of it. So uh, um, I can make the conclusion that on this expanded record, uh, uh, the uh, court of justice's concerns are going to be resolved. Now, you might think that only has a 15% chance of prevailing when it gets back to the anti-American court. But um, 15% is enough to keep uh, moving the data for three years while the litigation occurs. Yeah, and, and you're exactly right. Yeah, you are exactly right. And that was uh, exactly my third point is that indeed that white paper is probably trying to come up with the conclusion saying, and, and it's effectively it's written there. So, so uh, from uh, any EU eyes, it might look a bit uh, of an overstatement, but, but the, the white paper is basically saying, we think that in the end, uh, the U.S. Um, regime or protection available uh, for those type of activities is comparable or greater uh, than what you have in the EU. Um, we might consider that as, as a bit biased, and, and, and I'll uh, rely on you to tell me whether that's correct or not. But um, but it's um, it's a fair point, and at least it's it's a good try. That's for sure. Yeah, it's, I, I, that's what I would say. It is a, uh, it's plausible. It's plausible enough. I, I never thought, uh, frankly, all this time I have spent on intelligence reform and the 702 and uh, uh, fighting with the privacy guys over their uh, uh, increasingly crazy uh, efforts to uh, rein it in, that it would turn out to be relevant to my uh, practice. But in fact, uh, uh, I'm now in a position to tell clients, uh, yeah, I actually do understand all the things that the government has said here and can help you apply it to your particular situation. So uh, uh, Jamil and I uh, may have a, uh, an entire practice uh, uh, ahead of us doing that. Uh, all right, uh, Charles, anything else? Uh, any, any indication of whether this could also form the basis of a negotiated uh, privacy, uh, I don't know what you call it the third time around, the privacy prophylactic? What? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> we'll need to find a name. That's the more important piece. No? So, so um, but uh, I, I think really it's um, it's a nice try from the US to um, to probably set a kind of base negotiation strategy, saying you know what, if what the EU is willing really to impose is a change of our of our surveillance law, that's not going to happen. And it's not going to happen because this and this and this. And we give you already a flavor, let's say, of why we think that indeed what we have is good enough. And we'll just need to um, bundle that in, in, in a manner that will eventually, finally, uh, not be put down by the court in, in five years' time. And the commission might might buy that. The commission has really flipped on this and they, they, they think the court's really gone off the deep end. Uh, uh, so they're looking for a solution. Uh, and maybe the, the government has, the U.S. has provided a basis for saying, oh yeah, we've, we've, we've got all these reforms that the court didn't know about. So now you're adequate. And uh, to, on top of that, we're going to make you adequate as a matter of international agreement, not just as a matter of uh, our our grace as a as a government. And then you've got an international agreement that arguably uh, overrides the uh, uh, treaty that formed the European Union, or at least requires that you construe them in a fashion that makes them both have effect. And uh, that would uh, uh, that would offer um, a way out for the court as well. 
Yeah, and, and frankly, I think everyone realized that you cannot put the burden on uh, checking adequacy on organizations. So it's something that is the responsibility of states to decide whether or not uh, another state is adequate or offer adequate protection. And I, I think everyone is indeed looking for and hoping that there will be a way uh, for those transactions transacting flow, uh, transatlantic flow, sorry, to, to just keep going. Because uh, as we saw from, from the press, um, companies cannot probably just um, do differently. So, so uh, if they have to um, localize data or uh, turn down servers or the data centers, that will mean a big impact for business. So, um, so there is probably no other option than uh, a negotiated agreement between those two blocks. Okay, well, that would that would be a happy ending to a disastrous Supreme Court uh, Court of Justice uh, um, uh, opinion. Uh, so, Bruce, you are looking more and more like a prophet. The United Kingdom is working on IoT security legislation that looks pretty much like what you had been uh, recommending. Well, it's just one thing. So, they're trying to ban easy to guess passwords. This isn't new, California. Last year, banned default passwords on IoT devices. On my list of you know 100 things that have to be done, this is certainly one of them. Uh, it's a move in the right direction. I'm happy to see it. I mean, the neat thing to me about laws like this, even if they are just in California or just in the UK, is they benefit everybody. Because if you make a thermostat and you have a default password or a weak password and you change your software, you're not going to have two software builds, one for California, the UK, and one for everybody else. Everybody will improve. So even if the US yeah. can't get its act together, even if the EU can't, that California and the UK can pass laws improving security of IoT devices, and we all benefit. So it's a good news. We'll see how this goes. And it's just one step in a very long road to secure these devices. And and they're they're still just talking about what the legislation will do. It's not uh, it's not finalized. Uh, uh, it, it hasn't even been introduced, if I understand it. This yeah, this I mean, it's hard to. I mean, I don't understand the UK system as well. But yes, it looks like this is going to be a long way to go. And even the California law was passed, I think, last year. I don't know if it's taken effect yet. So lots. This is a slow process. It's much slower than security demands. I it, well, here's a. The other thing, the other development is that uh, we've got a new story talking about voting by phone and how lots of different secretaries of state are playing around with it, kind of trying to find a way to do it. There are companies um, uh, offering voting by phone. I, uh, do we really think voting by phone's time has come? No, don't be don't ridiculous. There isn't a security expert on the planet who thinks that's a good idea. It is right. Voting machine companies, it's elected officials, it's people who don't understand security. I'll give the quick answer because the question I'll get is, why can't I bank online? Why can't I vote online? The difference is anonymity. Yeah. Any banking system, we know who you are. If there are problems, we can unroll the transactions. Because voting requires a hard break between who you are and can you vote and how did you vote. A lot of the security we can bring to bear on the problem, we can't. If you eliminate the anonymity requirement, you know, if, we could, if all voting is public and we could decide that as a matter of society, then voting online is trivially easy. Right? You vote any way you like. There's a public record. You look to see if the vote's been tampered with. We're done. But because votes are anonymous – 
we cannot safely, securely vote online, by phone, on the internet. Don't do it. It's stupid. And if you're saying you're going to use blockchain, you're doubly stupid. Yeah, I, 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 I'm completely with you uh, on this. Uh, just sooner or later, somebody's going to say you're an evil vote-suppressing Republican. Uh, uh, just, just, just get used to it. So that. let's mark uh, this, that Stuart Baker so and Bruce Schneier agree on something. So we'll mark this episode. <laughs> Exactly. Exactly. Well, that, that'll that'll just be part of the indictment against you in the uh, in the woke Arati's, uh, um, uh bill of uh, uh, attainder. Uh, okay. <laughs> Great, um, Nate. Uh, I thought this was a really interesting story from the uh, uh, from NextGov about uh, um, how the FBI has pivoted, that's what I would call it, from pure law enforcement to saying, well, sometimes instead of bringing law enforcement to bear on cyber hackers, we're going to go to uh, Cyber Command and have them uh, uh, bring, what, bad consequences on the <laughs> hackers. Uh, uh, Nate, uh, what does that amount to? I actually thought this was a little bit of an overinterpretation of what Ray said. Um, so maybe we can talk it through and you can convince me. Um, you know, he has said in the past that the FBI is looking to impose more consequences on bad actors online uh, to deter that. And sometimes it does mean law enforcement action. In fact, in that context, he talked about. Um, indicting and, and prosecuting uh, bad actors from time to time. Um, in in this separate question, he was asked uh, by Romney in a hearing about offensive cyber. He said that they do pass information to DOD and the intelligence community when they pick up intelligence, foreign intelligence information in law enforcement investigations. I had always assumed they were doing this and, and it was it was just happening behind the scenes. Um, and and what's making news of this is, is one, the earlier comments um, that Ray made about, um, you know, being more aggressive about imposing consequences on people and to the uptick we've seen um, by DOD in taking some offensive cyber actions against bad actors. Um, but I didn't think that this was anything that was really net new happening at the Bureau. If anything, it, it seemed like more of a bureaucratic improvement on coordination and intelligence sharing. You, you might be right. He does. He, he's taking credit for it. He calls it a big yeah. part of the new FBI strategy that I rolled out. Um, but I do think it 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 it, it certainly suggests a um, um, a humility about how much the FBI can do on its own. Uh, uh, the, yeah. Uh, there are other players, and often their tools are going to be more useful than the tools the FBI has at its disposal. Yeah, and I think again, the you know the the steps that the Trump administration has taken to to make it easier for DOD to go ahead and take action based on that information then is is to me the, still the biggest um, net new thing we've seen here. So one of the things they're doing, and Cyber Command has gotten pretty good at this, or at least. Uh, it's it's a common tactic. Is they they steal the tools uh, of the hackers and then they uh, uh, take them to Virus Total uh, and dox the hackers. Uh, um, and there was a, um, a story uh, in CyberScoop about Cyber Command uh, finding a uh, 
hacking group that was going after Russia, Ukraine, India, Malaysia. Um, I don't think they said who they thought it was, which is actually unusual. Usually uh, uh, DOD hasn't been too shy about saying who they think it is. Uh, uh, Bruce, anything new in, in this uh, uh, latest, it, it, at least this sounds like it's something that it fits with what uh, uh, Director Ray said was uh, one of the weapons that he thought um, uh, were necessary for defense. I think it is, especially when we're dealing with nation state actors. We have this real blurring between corporate security and national security, and we're going to have to figure it out. And I think this is one tool that we have to think about. Okay. Uh, the, the one thing, the, one of the thing when you, I knew you were going to be on here, Bruce, that I wanted to ask you about is Checkpoint has a, a, a report in which they try, the first time I've seen it done, although I wouldn't be surprised if it had been done before and it feels like something that AI could could be helpful on, is they actually went looking for uh, commonalities in hackers' exploits to try to identify, much as we would try to identify uh, who really wrote uh, Shakespeare's plays by looking at the uh, uh, word usage of all the contemporary uh, playwrights, uh, um, they start looking at uh, the particular habits of uh, exploit writers, and they made a pretty good argument that they had found a commonality in several uh, exploits suggesting they were drafted, uh, written by the same person. If this catches on and if it works, uh, we could see uh, a lot more personal attribution of uh, uh, hacker tools in the future. Yeah, it's interesting. This isn't new, actually. We've been seeing this kind of forensic analysis for a while. Uh, both individual stylistic differences, like you know Shakespeare versus uh, Francis Bacon, and also uh, code reuse and library use, which shows common origins. Mm -hmm. We saw that in the uh, North Korean attribution for the Sony attack, for example. The code was similar to yep. previous code that was known to be North Korean. We've seen that in some Russian attributions and also some Chinese attributions. So this isn't new. This is a sort of another step in that direction. This kind of forensic analysis is part of figuring out attribution. And I think you're right that the kind of wholesale analysis that a machine learning system might be able to do will be interesting and useful. It's already actually useful in finding anonymous blog posts, and there have been, there's been research in that, you know, going back to uh, to human-generated speech. But in code, yes, I think this is it's an interesting article to read and to see these techniques get better. Of course, once these techniques start being used, there will be counter techniques. So there will be code obfuscation systems that you can run your source yes. code through to disguise who you are. So the arms race continues. Yeah, and, and I, I think that's also true. You know, when people, <laughs> there was a famous story, I think during the Bush, the uh, the first Bush, George H.W. Bush uh, administration, when there were some leaks, and it was reported that one of the really particularly knife-fighting uh, uh, leaders within the, the uh, uh, Bush administration had taken to leaking um, uh, to the reporters using uh, phrases that were, associated with other members of the administration. So if somebody had a catchphrase, he'd work the catchphrase into the quote that he authorized to, to be used. So not only did he get the leak out, he got somebody else blamed for it. So you can see how you would be inclined to do that. Wheels uh, within wheels, I tell you. <laughs> exactly. 
Exactly. Uh, all right. Uh, uh, let's go. Oh, I, 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 there was, there's talking this about people finding people's, the hackers fingerprints. There was a story this week that I just, I, I really did love. Apparently some hackers had gotten into a, um, a security system and the security system, um, uh, controlled an access to a particular uh, uh, physical location using the fingerprints of employees. And having compromised the system, the hackers were so enthusiastic about getting in that they uploaded their own fingerprints uh, in an effort to get the machine to accept them as authorized uh, 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 to authorizing them to get into the system, into the a physical location. Apparently, that did not work. But the cops now have the fingerprints of the guys they're looking for. I, I, I love this. Uh, uh, all right, um, uh, Nate. Uh, we're going to do a quick hits here. Uh, Microsoft has a new report out, uh, which I characterized as still milking. It's uh, 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 Microsoft will protect you against uh, evil uh, um, uh, nation state hackers. Was there anything actually really interesting in that uh, uh, annual report? To you and me, not really. Um, you know, to people who follow this stuff closely, there's not a whole lot that's new. It was partially a, a marketing gimmick, but. Um, but I think it's also important to remember that they're aiming this at their customer base. A lot of these people aren't the most sophisticated um, cybersecurity experts. And I think that, you know, them putting out this kind of information to remind people that they are potentially targets of state actors and the ways in which state actors may be coming after them is a useful thing for these companies to do. So, so I think there's a little bit of value in it. I agree. Uh, everybody should tell their PR guys to stand down with the overenthusiastic uh, uh, storylines. But uh, yes, it is a good thing. And Microsoft deserves praise for doing this. Okay, two more things. Uh, uh, Section 230, uh, which we didn't cover at all t uh, this week, is nonetheless going to be a big deal uh, uh, next week because um, uh, there's going to be testimony with the CEOs of most of the big uh, uh, social media companies. Uh, they're being subpoenaed now. The subpoenas are unanimous. They're going to happen. Uh, and they're going to happen. Uh, there's going to be testimony soon. Uh, and there's a House panel. This is a Democratic House Intelligence, Democratic-led House Intelligence Committee uh, writing about the inadequacies of the intelligence community's capabilities uh, with respect to the People's Republic of China, which is fair. I, uh, you know, we've been looking for terrorists in the backcountry for 20 years. Uh, that was, that's not the same as figuring out how the uh, Chinese are trying to eat our lunch. Uh, and uh, there's a lot of catching up to do. And this report lays out um, a lot of the uh, things that the intelligence community is going to have to do. And on the whole, uh, I, I'm not sure I would buy all of it or think that it's comp uh, comprehensive, but it wasn't a bad start. And if uh, Vice President Biden wins, uh, let's hope that that's part of uh, what he tries to do with the uh, intelligence community. All right. 
Jamil Daffer, Nate Jones, Bruce Schneier, uh, Charles Hellebut, uh, thank you for joining me. Uh, thanks also for our theme music uh, to Ken Weissman of Weissman Sound Design. This has been episode 331 of the Cyberlaw Podcast brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Don't forget to send comments and feedback to cyberlawpodcast at steptoe.com. Uh, follow me on Twitter and uh, uh, at least half the time I will send out uh, the stories we're thinking about uh, um, covering and you can vote on them. Uh, and uh, I am pleased to say that after weeks of hounding and haranguing people, we got two new uh, reviews. Uh, at least we found two new reviews. Uh, uh, and I will read parts of them. We will forensically uh, analyze yes. that to make sure you didn't write them yourself. Well, it, it, one of them is E.S. McElroy via Apple Podcasts in Canada. Uh, so I, I could have faked that, I suppose. But I know I own no Apple products. Uh, and as people who listen know, um, it says the hosts, panelists and guests are phenomenal and profoundly knowledgeable. Views and opinions are diverse, but not inflammatory. Great show. P.S. The old intro music was better. So you can't pl uh, uh, please all of the people all of the time. Uh, uh, sorry, E.S. McElroy. I think we're, we're, we're committed to the music, but uh, thanks for the review. Uh, here's one that uh, I'm sorry Nick Weaver is not on because uh, uh, the heading is Stubaker should head CISA if Nick is his deputy. The Cyber Law Podcast continues to be my favorite podcast of all time. Uh, Stu is a shrewd host with more experience at the intersection of law and cybersecurity than anyone you've ever heard. He may be the definitive OG in this respect, and his guests, whether they be news roundup regulars or featured experts, are excellent. Steptoe and Lawfare are running a tight ship. Uh, the cast of the, each episode will bring you up to speed on the most important current events in cyber law. Um, and uh, I'm not going to read all of it because it goes on in that vein. Uh, uh, I, I do note it says uh, uh, Nick, uh, Nick, there should be a special uh, podcast in which uh, Nick Weaver interviews Stu Baker about his aspirations to be appointed uh, commander of Cybercom, which is the only way I can square his views on the president. Uh, yep, I, I suppose that's possible. Uh, and um, uh, he, he, he urges that uh, uh, Nick accept the uh, deputy position. Uh, what I thought was particularly, this guy is listening hard because he said, Stu, I, I also note that Stewart's uh, inside baseball rivalry with the FBI is only obvious to you, our most loyal listeners. And it's true. I have a um, uh, an arm's length uh, warm feeling toward uh, uh, the FBI. And if that's an uh, oxymoron, it was intended to be. Uh, so I... Uh, Terrific. Uh, and a shout out to Elson Kanya, who's been on a couple of times uh, uh, in this. Uh, it's from W.O. Ranj. Uh, so who knows uh, what that really stands for. But uh, uh, thank you to W.O.R.A.N.J. Uh, and that's it for this week. Please join us again next week as we once again provide insights into the latest events in technology, security, privacy and government.